0: Hey y'all! Back again for another episode. I'm Brooke, and this is M is for Murder. The past couple of weeks, I've covered terms like decapitation, exorcism, and folie a deux. So this week, I wanted to switch it up and do a specific case. This week is the letter G, and G is for Gerald and Charlene Gallego. But before we get started, I just want to say, if you're out there listening, thank you so much. It can be incredibly overwhelming and scary to start a podcast, especially by yourself. There's a lot of self-doubt. Like, a lot. But... At the end of the day, I'm having a great time. It's tons of fun to research these different terms and cases and learn a little bit more about something that I find truly fascinating and then share it with the world. So thank you for listening and coming back week after week. Also, I'd like to add quick addition, trigger warning for this episode. Gerald and Charlene Gallego are known as the sex slave murderers, so there is a There is discussion of rape and sexual assault, although I don't go into detail. All right, with that being said, let's dig in. Gerald Armando Gallego was born on July 17, 1946, in Sacramento, California. He spent most of his childhood growing up in Chico, California, but it was not an easy childhood. His mom was a sex worker, and his father was in and out of jail, although he never knew his father anyways. His mom was constantly dating abusive boyfriends, and they, along with his mom, would beat him. He was often hungry, always dirty, and never loved. At the time of Gerald's birth, his dad was in prison for vehicle theft. In 1954, Mr. Gallego escaped and took a guard as hostage. He spent a few days on the run, hiding from the police. When he was sure that the guard was no longer of any use, he shot him in the head, killing him on the spot. Mr. Gallego was arrested and put on trial for the murder of the prison guard. He received the death penalty, and in 1955, he was the first man to be executed by the gas chamber in Mississippi. Gerald was a young boy at the time, so his mother made up a fictional story about his father's death. However, the kids at his school and in his neighborhood knew the truth and teased him for being the child of a murderer. Although Gerald never knew his father, they shared an affinity for crime. Before Gerald was 12 years old, he already had a criminal record. Five burglaries, one malicious act, one act of vandalism, and he had run away twice. He got into a lot of trouble with his half-brother, including recreational drugs, but the worst was when Gerald was 13. He sexually assaulted a six-year-old girl. Because he was a minor, the judge sent him to a boys' school for juvenile delinquents, but that didn't stop Gerald. After that, he and his brother were involved in a robbery, which resulted in a car chase and gunfire in the middle of the street. Again, the judge was light on sentencing, and Gerald was only placed in the Preston School of Industry in Ione, California. After his time there was served, he moved closer to Sacramento to continue his crime spree with his half-brother. Now, this man must have been a real charmer, because he was married many times. Five different women married him. First, Gerald got married when he was 16 in 1963. His wife was five years older than him, so she was 21. That's gross. Four short months after the wedding, their daughter Krista was born shockingly, that marriage did not last and they divorced soon after. He fought for custody of Krista, which was awarded, but then he decided to send her to live with his mother. At first, I thought that kind of seems like a control issue. Like you don't actually want to take care of your daughter, but you don't want your ex-wife taking care of her. But... Then we find out that Gerald visited Krista often and it was later discovered that he sexually abused her starting from when she was just six years old. So maybe that's why he fought to keep custody of her. Ew. Apologies for the crinkling in the background just then. I had to pull Bear, my cat, out of the Christmas presents that I've already wrapped this year. He will do anything to get inside of a bag. Okay, continuing on. Two years after his divorce from his first wife, Gerald found a new bride. Again, she was older than him, but she had no idea about his violent and criminal past. Once the physical abuse started happening, she filed for divorce. A little bit over a year later, Gerald found his third wife. As with his second wife, as soon as she saw his violent side, she got out. In 1969, Gerald was on to his fourth woman, a 19-year-old. He was 23 at the time. Just like the wives before her, she could not stand the daily physical abuse, so she asked for a divorce as well. However, she was unaware that she was pregnant at the time. Gerald's second daughter was born after he and his fourth wife had already separated, and it's reported that she, the second daughter, has never known who her father is. Five years after his fourth marriage, Gerald got married again. It's unclear exactly how old she was, but she was significantly younger. She actually put up with his abuse for a few years before they split in 1977. At this time, Gerald was working as a bartender, and lucky for him, some nice girls that came to the bar he worked at set him up on a date with their friend. That friend was Charlene Williams. Charlene Adele Williams was born October 19, 1956, in Stockton, California, to Charles and Mercedes Williams. Her upbringing was very different from Gerald's. Charlene came from a stable home with loving parents. Charles, her father, was a well-respected vice president of a supermarket chain after having worked his way up from starting as the butcher. Charlene was shy and quiet in school, but made good grades and had good attendance. She had a naturally high IQ and was very talented with the violin. However, she started abusing drugs and alcohol in high school, which led her down a dark path. She barely graduated high school and failed out of college. Not too long after, she had two failed marriages. Charlene's first husband was a wealthy heroin addict, and while she was with him, she used a lot of cocaine. Her second husband was a soldier known to be a quote, mommy's boy, but she got bored of him and filed for divorce. After these two failed marriages, Charlene had an affair with a married man, but he broke it off with her when she suggested they have a threesome with his wife. She was devastated and attempted suicide. Not long after her friends would set her up with Gerald. After all, she was desperate to find love the first date between Gerald and Charlene went so well that the two became inseparable and moved in together within one week. Charlene was absolutely enamored with Gerald. One night, Gerald brought home a 16-year-old dancer for a threesome, but he told the girls that they could not touch each other, only him. The next day, he found Charlene and the dancer being intimate. He became enraged. He threw the dancer out, Some accounts say he literally threw her out of a window. He beat Charlene and then he quote, withheld sex from her for a month. After this event, Gerald was no longer able to get an erection with Charlene and would beat her every time it happened. He told Charlene that in order for him to be sexually satisfied, he would need a sex slave and he needed her help to hunt down and capture a woman. Like I said, Charlene was enamored with Gerald, and so she would do anything for him. On September 11, 1978, Charlene and Gerald headed to a mall in Sacramento, California. Gerald told Charlene to go into the mall and find a girl to bring back to the van. She convinced Rhonda Scheffler, age 17, and Kippy Vaught, age 16, to follow her back to the van in the parking lot. One account reports that Charlene told the girls that she had weed and they could all get high together. Once they got to the van, Gerald threatened the teenage girls with a handgun to get in. He tied them up and Charlene drove the van to Baxter, California. Once there, Gerald raped both girls and then hit them with a tire iron in the head before executing them with a 25 caliber gun. Within the next year, a couple things happened. First, Charlene and Gerald got married, although it was not a legal marriage as Jared was not technically divorced from his previous wife. Second, Gerald's daughter, Krista, went to the police to report the sexual abuse at the hands of her father. She accused him of sodomy, incest, and unlawful sexual intercourse. Gerald and Charlene went on the run and moved to Houston, Texas. On June 24, 1979, Gerald and Charlene traveled to Reno, Nevada, where they visited the Washoe County Fair. Here, they ran into Brenda Judd, aged 14, and Sandra Cooley, age 13. It is reported that Charlene lured the girls back to the van under the guise that they could make money handing out leaflets. As with the abduction in Sacramento the year before, Gerald held the girls at gunpoint and forced them into the van where he sexually assaulted them. Later, Charlene would testify that Gerald bludgeoned the girls with a hammer or a shovel. Brenda and Sandra were left on a desolate road, and their bodies would not be found until 1999. They were assumed to be runaways for years. Almost another year later, Gerald and Charlene were back at a mall in Sacramento, California, on April 24, 1980. They abducted Stacy Ann Redican and Karen Chipman Twiggs, both 17. Stacy and Karen were ordered to get undressed by Gerald. They were sexually assaulted and bludgeoned to death. Their bodies were found three months later in July. Linda Teresa Aguilar, age 21, was hitchhiking through Oregon on June 6, 1980, when she was picked up by Gerald and Charlene. They told her they would take her wherever she needed to go, but instead, Gerald sexually assaulted her before discarding her body. When she was found, there was evidence that she had been bludgeoned and tied up with bonds around her ankles and wrist. One account even stated that sand had been found in Linda's nose and lungs, meaning she had still been alive when she was placed in a shallow grave near Gold Beach, Oregon. She was also four months pregnant at the time of her death. On Gerald's birthday in 1980, July 17th, he selected a woman that he knew. This was the first time he killed an acquaintance. All of his previous victims had been strangers. She was also much older than his other victims at the age of 34. Virginia Mochel was a bartender at a bar that Gerald and Charlene frequently visited in West Sacramento. Virginia was abducted from the parking lot, violently raped in the van, strangled, and dumped near a pond in Clarksburg, California. 3 months after her murder, fishermen found Virginia's remains. There was still fishing line found binding her body. The last victims of Gerald and Charlene Gallego were Craig Miller and Mary Elizabeth Sowers. Craig, 22, and his fiancee, Mary Elizabeth, 21, were leaving a party when they were confronted by Gerald. Gerald pointed his gun at the couple and ordered them to get inside the vehicle. Craig and Mary Elizabeth did as they were told, but their friend Andy witnessed something going on, and so he approached the car. Charlene jumped out of the van and told him to go away. So Andy wrote down the license plate number. Charlene drove to a remote area near Bass Lake, California, where Craig was forced out of the car and executed. Mary Elizabeth was taken back to the couple's apartment where she was raped and sexually assaulted for hours. When Gerald was done, the couple took Mary Elizabeth to a field in Placer County, California, where she was executed. Andy, the friend of Craig and Mary Elizabeth that had taken down the license plate, waited until morning to see if the couple would come home. When they did not, he called the police and told them everything he had seen the night before. The police began their investigation. The license plate belonged to a car that was owned by Charlene's parents. They told law enforcement that their daughter was using the car. When the police showed up at Charlene's parents to interview Charlene, Gerald left her to be interviewed alone. She denied having any involvement with the abduction of Craig and Mary Elizabeth. She stated that she had been at the movies, with her boyfriend, the night in question, but the cops were suspicious. Charlene cooperated and handed over the keys to the police to search the car. As they were searching, she excused herself, saying she was having morning sickness. At this time, she was pregnant with her and Gerald's child. The police asked her to come back to the station when she felt better to continue her interview. They finished the car search and they found no evidence of foul play or anything to connect them to the crime. So Gerald knew the police were onto them. So he and Charlene went to go move Craig's body. However, when they got there, they discovered that the body had already been discovered. This is when they decide to run and Charlene never went back to finish her interview. Investigators ended up connecting her to Gerald and found his criminal past. Law enforcement decided it was time to track down Gerald, but he was nowhere to be found. Investigators enter Gerald's house where they found guns all throughout. However, none of them could be connected to the murder of Craig Miller. The police get a lucky break, though, when a bartender that used to work with Gerald lets them know that one night Gerald shot his gun off inside the bar. Investigators collect that bullet... And they are able to link that to the bullets found at the scene of Craig's murder. So now Gerald is wanted for the murder of Craig Miller. Charlene and Gerald were still on the run, but they needed money. They called Charlene's parents, who sent money without contacting law enforcement. But soon enough, Charlene and Gerald are low on money again, so they called for more money a second time. Finally, Charlene's parents realized how much trouble their daughter was in, so they contacted the police and told them everything. Law enforcement knew that Gerald and Charlene were going to the Western Union Bank in Omaha, Nebraska, to pick up money sent from Charlene's parents. They were there waiting for the couple, and the arrest went down without any issue. At first, Gerald and Charlene both pled not guilty to kidnapping and murder, but on January 17th, 1981, while in prison, Charlene gave birth to her and Gerald's son, Gerald Armando Gallego Jr., who immediately went into the custody of Charlene's parents. I believe this is a contributing factor to why Charlene's lawyers convinced California prosecutors to allow her to testify against Gerald for a plea deal for a lesser sentence. So that she had the opportunity to be released from prison and spend time in her life with her son. She also became insistent that she was forced into participating in the crimes out of fear. Charlene stated that she was scared of Gerald and believed if she went against him, he would kill her. As part of the plea deal, Charlene would not be able to be charged for any other crimes in any other states. She was sentenced to 16 years and eight months the minimum for first-degree murder gerald decided to serve as his own attorney at his own trial for the murder of craig miller and mary elizabeth sowers don't do this why would anyone do this he did not do himself any favors he damaged his case in so many ways he did not give an opening statement He did not cross-examine Mercedes William, Charlene's mother, and the prosecution's most effective witness, but he did cross-examine Charlene for six days where he tried to discredit her. Gerald further damaged his case by putting himself on the stand. The prosecution used this opportunity to catch him in countless inconsistencies. In California, the case was such a spectacle that when there was a shortage in funds for Gerald's trial, the residents all came together and donated about $25,000 to the prosecution to cover the cost. So in June of 1983, Gerald was found guilty in Sacramento for the murders of Craig Miller and Mary Elizabeth Sowers after only four hours of deliberation. He was sentenced to death and then transferred to Nevada for the trial of the Twig and Redican murders. He did allow a lawyer to represent him, but he was still convicted of two more counts of murder and two counts of kidnapping. He was sentenced to death yet again, making him one of the few American criminals to be on death row in two states simultaneously. Starting in 1987, Gerald continued to proclaim his innocence by filing many appeals, almost all of which were denied. When he did get a new penalty hearing in 1999, the judge took less than an hour to sentence him to death again. In 2002, before he could be executed, Gerald passed away from rectal cancer in Nevada. His cancer had spread to his lungs and his liver. But if it's any condolence, the last few weeks that he was alive, he was in terrible, terrible pain. Rewinding back, a little to 1985, Charlene Gallego became Charlene Williams again when she divorced Gerald. She was released from prison exactly 16 years and eight months after her sentencing. At first, Charlene moved away from California, not letting anyone know where she would be going. However, she eventually moved back to California to the exact area where she helped lure, assault, and kill those innocent people. She also changed her name to Mary Martinez. Her and Gerald's son grew up to become a soldier and was killed in Afghanistan Afghanistan in February 2010. She started a charity in 2011 to help friends and families of military personnel called Gold Country for Troops. But I did read somewhere that it was not a 501c3, meaning it has not been approved by the Internal Revenue Service as a tax-exempt charitable organization. I did find some filing information on it and the filing status is currently listed as suspended. So that's the story of the sex slave murders or Gerald and Charlene Gallego. Now I believe that Charlene absolutely played a voluntary role in the abductions and murders of the victims, even if she wasn't the one to pull the trigger. As her defense, yeah, she insisted that she was forced into participating because she was terrified of Gerald, and yes, I do think that he beat her, but I believe this explanation was just to save herself and help the prosecutors put Gerald away. After all, Charlene once stated, quote, we had this sexual fantasy, see, so we just carried it out. I mean, like it was easy and fun and we really enjoyed it, so why shouldn't we do it? Based on that statement alone, I don't think Charlene should have been able to get out of prison, much less live in the same area where the crimes occurred and go on about her life under a different name. I'll just leave you with this. How would you feel if your neighbor was a rapist and murderer and you had no idea? As always, thank you so much for listening. If you've got any questions, corrections, concerns, comments, or you just want to chat, reach out. Truly would love to hear from you. You can reach me on Instagram and Twitter at misformurderpod or on the website misformurder.com. Also, I post hints every Wednesday about the upcoming episode on Instagram. So follow along to try and guess what's coming. You can find the links for all the sources used for today's episode on the website. If you like M is for Murder, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with friends. Don't forget, new episodes drop every Friday. Next week, the letter H. Have a great weekend, stay safe, and I'll see you on the internet.